I'm Liv. I'm Steve. And this is Fish Out of Water, a podcast for epileptics by epileptics who are not medical professionals. Except me, kind of. <laughs> and this is my sister, Dr. Boo. She's still here for part two of Sisterhood of the Traveling Seizures. <laughs> How have we been for the last ten minutes? Oh, I was excellent. <laughs> you were excellent in the last episode, Steve. You really were. Well, I'm I'm just thinking the last ten minutes I was excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I realized I did not I got you to something. Hang on just a sec. Thank you for being in fish out of water. Oh, that's oh, so wow. awesome. Yeah. Oh, I got a shirt. You got a shirt. Wow. I had custom made shirts by my friend Aiden. You can find him at uh, Aiden Does Prince on Instagram. You even got the right size. I got the right that's size. Amazing. I also wow. knew that you have an orange cat, so getting a black shirt was probably a bad idea. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you Lily. so much. You're welcome. Wow. Yeah. Cute logo. I'm going to wear that to work today. <laughs> it's even my color. Self-marketing. <laughs> I can wear it to the dojo. It's black. Oh, also, happy seizure month. Is it seizure month? It's seizure month. Like epilepsy day. I know. It's like happy seizure month. <laughs> um, yeah. Everybody, it's, everybody have a happy seizure. Yeah. There's like a, <laughs> yeah, on us. <laughs> We're giving them out for free. Yeah. Right. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> We're allowed to make that joke. Um, yeah. It was, uh, it was fun getting those from Aiden. So thank you again uh, from him. That's great. I told him I would give them to you live. So you yeah. can hear the genuine reactions. There you go. Yeah, so there we go. Very good. Yeah, they're very cool. I like them. They're excellent. Yeah. Uh, you can reach us at fishoutofwater101 at outlook.com. We can see if we can order you one as well. Okay, so uh, this episode is going to be more on the doctor side of Dr. Boo, less on sisterhood of Dr. Boo. If that made sense. That sounds like a wicked name for a TV program. <laughs> the Sisterhood of Dr. Boo. <laughs> I would watch that. I, I don't know how would. much people would trust my opinion if I was Dr. Boo. <laughs> well, the, the kids would. Yeah. Oh. Dr. Boo. <laughs> Freak him it's, out a little bit. It just, Halloween just ended. It's a perfect, perfect name. <laughs> well, Harry was Dr. Boo for his, uh, for his second Halloween. Was he? Yeah, I got him like a little, uh, like a doctor outfit and I wrote Dr. Boo on like where like the name would be embroidered. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic. He'd go up to the doors and he'd knock on them and every time the door would open, he would try to go inside. <laughs> like you're a little kid. If a door opens, you're supposed to go inside. So each time I'd have to pull him back and they'd be like, oh, you're a little doctor. I'm like, he's his aunt who's Dr. Boo and she's a general surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a dick. <laughs> oh, I That's love fantastic. to brag about that. Okay, uh, you're on Not So Fun Fact Corner. I am. Let's hear your not so fun fact. Okay, so this one is going to be like, well, duh. It's but it's a it's a well, duh kind of fact. Like people, I think realize this, but we're gonna. The reason I'm bringing it up and I'm gonna talk about it is because we got a doctor in our corner today. So it's it, it makes for a good conversation piece. So people without epilepsy can have seizures. Yes, absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah, I know. Like I said, it's a bit of a well, yeah. But uh, I'm talking about some of the reasons why people have seizures. Uh, obviously, there's general actual uh, conditions like myself and Liv have where it's for whatever reason, like they still don't know why I'm having seizures. They're like, here's some meds. Mm -hmm. And they did a bunch of tests and they came up, whatever. Basically, they don't know. Only know that I have them and that meds control them. Right. So I take meds. And that probably would be the same result either way, even if I knew that, what, what happened or not. However... Some people do have seizures and they don't know why, and then they don't have another one. Mm -hmm. And it's just for whatever reason. So a couple of the reasons, high fevers, mm -hmm. uh, low blood sugars, alcohol, or sometimes drug withdrawal. Although I will say from doing detox, uh, more alcohol than drug. Yes. The, the kind oh, really? Of, why? Well, the common misconception is that people die from drug withdrawal. That's not true. Not typically. Not unless there's other things going wrong with them. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're dying. And they will tell you that they're dying. Sometimes they'll tell you that they have seizures from it, and that may not be true. Yeah, because they want their their drug, right? Yeah. The one that you do have to be careful about is alcohol. Yes. Alcohol will kill people. It's actually the far worst one to withdraw from. Mm -hmm. You have to be the most careful. That's why they have detox centers. Yeah. Uh, people that go cold turkey can have a seizure coma. So we... And, and die. We... Uh, 
when we have patients that come into hospital every time they're being admitted, I always ask them how much alcohol they drink, not just because I want to know what their lifestyle and general health status is like, but also because if they are at high risk of having withdrawal seizures or complications of that, that I can put them on what's called a CWA protocol which is a uh, way that we monitor for symptoms of withdrawal from alcohol. And we actually typically give benzodiazepines instead of giving them alcohol in order to mm-hmm. replace it and avoid the complications. Yeah, detox, we uh, were okay with them coming in with alcohol on board. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it was kind of preferred. Yeah. Because if they came in with alcohol on board, it means that they weren't going to have a medical issue right away. Exactly. You can think of alcoholism as a long-term medical problem, mm-hmm. sort of a not a short-term yeah. thing typically unless they start not having it yeah and this goes usually for the people that are pretty heavy drinkers yeah and we actually when they come into hospital also give them certain vitamin supplements because typically with alcoholism you have a deficit in your nutrition not just in having too much alcohol as well uh, so we give them typically thiamine uh, a couple other multivitamins as well in order to supplement because um, the withdrawal can exacerbate that and give you permanent brain damage sometimes absolutely yeah yeah i'll i'll give you a interesting side note that you you'll appreciate we get them to uh blow on the little device to make see how much alcohol they have on board Mm -hmm. uh the highest i ever saw was someone who i was talking to just like you in a perfectly clear conversation was Mm 0.52 0.52 for those that don't know is Basically, it will kill you at that level for most people. Whoa. And this person was talking to me like having a normal conversation. That's how used his body was to alcohol. Totally. Was he like a bigger person, though? No, no. It's just his years and years of drinking. To be clear, 0.52 means uh, half of 1% of all of your body's fluids that you have in you at the moment is alcohol. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. So to put it another way, 90% of all the alcohol you drink does not actually make it there your liver gets rid of it your liver is an amazing organ it gets rid of 90 percent of it so when you get drunk off of two shots or three shots or ten shots whatever your personal limit is mine these days is probably two before i start getting a really good buzz you're only getting 10 percent of that shot huh yeah it's interesting and so people that try to circumvent the drinking part of it and go other routes which if you want to hear how you can do that i don't need to tell you. You can Google it. Um, but uh, there are ways to get around it. People kill themselves all the time doing it. So don't. I don't recommend it because you're getting 10 times the alcohol you would otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's an, it's an interesting thing. But yeah, alcohol will definitely cause seizures on withdrawal. But typically, drugs do not. And so when someone is detoxing from or withdrawing, I should say, uh, from uh, cocaine or from uh, usually meth, uh, opioids, uh, all kinds of things like that, it typically won't kill them. It's just going to make their lives miserable for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, also concussions. That's another one that uh, people have seizures. Notice that a lot of these things can affect your body fluid levels, your low blood sugars. You know, obviously it's, it's controlling. It's all brain related ultimately, as you would expect. But anything that can affect that can cause a seizure at some point. Mm-hmm. Potentially. I think I've had a concussion and had a seizure. I was in the foyer at my high school and I was just horsing around with a friend of mine and I fell and I smacked the back of my head on the um, tile flooring and had a seizure. So what do you think, doctor? Would that be like I smacked my head and had a seizure or was the timing just impeccable? It, it could honestly be either way, and you can't make that decision. <laughs> I this know, is, right? This is, this is why I find a lot of doctors are non-committal to just about everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, honestly, you can have a comedy of errors happen, and something just happens because of one of them, but there's all these other things that you might look at first. But hitting your head does sound a little suspect that you might have, because I've had it where, you know, I ran too hard or something like that, and then I caused myself a seizure. Because basically, I was pushing my body too hard. Mm. I've had to learn the hard way that, you know... Maybe don't be such a exercise hog and maybe calm down the exercise and just start moderation. Yeah. Um, it was something that's still difficult for me to do because I love activity. And so it's a hard one for me to rein in sometimes. But it will cause me to have a seizure because of that. And it's probably because I'm already predisposed to seizures. Mm-hmm. So you could say the concussion didn't necessarily be the only thing that caused it, but your predisposition to the seizure might have had yeah. a yeah. helping hand. And there's there's some 
medications that can lower your seizure threshold as well. So typically we don't put people on it if they have a seizure disorder or epilepsy. There's a few like notable ones that often are around in the hospital quite a bit, but they don't necessarily cause a seizure themselves, but make you more prone to have one if you already have like an underlying disorder. Yeah. Again, like non-committal is probably the wisest thing to do. <laughs> Honestly though, because I, there's no way that we would know for sure. Yeah. It's a mystery. Have you ever had a seizure because of, uh, because you were so emotional? No, I'm not a typically emotional person. No. Like really stressed out even? Um, stress, it, harder one, once again, it probably added to things. And I've had ones on days that were pretty crappy days, but it might have been crappy for like half a dozen reasons. And, you know, having emotions, yeah. It, I mean, they can certainly... That's happened uh, to me in the cause, past. Cause, yeah. Yeah, super emotional day, lots of crying. Like, cat uh, got hit by a car um, and just bald for hours and led into a seizure big well, fight with a friend you gotta figure the, the emotion part of it was causing your body to react over a long period of time hmm. so the one it's sort of like the this is why causation is and correlation are not necessarily the same thing exactly is that one could be there and it may have led to something else which led to something else so then people say it always causes this and it's not true mm-hmm. it's like correlation is not causation so i imagine they there's a lot of correlating issues with emotional distress are you emotionally distressed because you had it in that case there's some obvious reasons yeah but uh and for some people that are emotionally distressed you can have a lot of factors like you're distressed that day but are you distressed because maybe your hormones are imbalanced or you have had way too much of one thing or another or drinking people are very emotional when they drink but is it the drinking that's causing the excess seizures or causing putting into that or is it the emotion that's attached to that or is it the drinking that caused the emotions which caused you to ball which caused you to do something else then that was the thing that caused you to have the seizure you see what i mean yes and trying to pinpoint those things is damn difficult (laughs) generalize it (laughs) Oh, please continue with your not-so-fun facts. Well, that's that was most of it. I will say uh, the one thing about medications that I do miss is grapefruits. <laughs> I can't oh, yeah. eat grapefruits. I, I miss grapefruits. I, I loved in the morning. I would cut a grapefruit, and I'd put a whole bunch of brown sugar on it, and then we had grapefruit spoons, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've ever had one. I can't have grapefruit. So. Uh, yeah, right from an early age, too. Yeah. That's right. I, I really like the taste of it. But grapefruit really spoons do. are basically serrated spoons. So you have to be a little bit careful. They're pointed in a a wedge shape. So you get in between each wedge when you cut a grapefruit in mm-hmm. half. And you put lots of brown sugar on it. And you're <laughs> dom, dom, dom. It, it is the most delicious thing. And I so miss them. Do you react to Tylenol as well? No. No? I I, it, this isn't a reaction. Uh, bear in mind the grapefruits just uh, change. And they do this to a lot of medications. Mm-hmm. But including uh, the medication I'm on. Tegretor or carbamazepine, uh, it changes its efficacy. So it, it, it changes its ability to put it in. So it might give you a bolus, which is just a large dose of it all at once rather than doing it over time. Right. And so then you end up having a seizure because you come to a point where it's burned through it uh, because it changed the molecular structure of it. Last time I saw you, you explained why Tylenol makes me barf my guts out. Well, both Tylenol and grapefruit are metabolized in... Uh, with specific enzymes, typically within your liver, and it's the same metabolism pathways as the medications that you're likely taking. So if Tylenol or grapefruit inhibit this molecular protein that's helping metabolize your medication, you can either end up with kind of an overdose almost of your medication or an underdose. So either way, it can make you like more prone to seizures or just have too high of the dosage of your medication in your bloodstream and you can have a reaction. For years, I thought I was just really not, allergic to yeah, Tylenol. It's and then, not an allergy. It has to do with the metabolism. I had no idea. Then the other the yeah. last time I saw like back in May when I visited you, you just dropped that. And I was like, really? Yeah. This whole time? I thought it's, I was allergic. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's like I would love to do a show on that, have you back and just talk about it in general. Uh, the kind of misconceptions people have about allergies mm. uh, and how allergies a lot of people say, oh, well, this thing made me throw up, so I'm obviously allergic to it. And it's like, well, did you... Uh, or is it a side effect from the medication? Yeah, or, or did it, did you uh, plume up, go red, you know, start yeah. having trouble breathing, things like this?
this? And they're like, well, no. And it's like, well, then you're not allergic to it. Mm-hmm. The classic yeah. is the penicillin yes. allergy. A lot of people who have like a rash at one point when they're a child from penicillin, they say that they can never take penicillin ever again. It gets really annoying because <laughs> it's a lot of antibiotics that we want to use in the hospital. And people say that they have a penicillin allergy. It makes it limits our choices. But it's actually that if you're infected with a certain virus and you get a penicillin-based medication, you can get a rash, but it's just a factor of what infection you had. It is not an allergy. Anyway, that's and, a whole other Yeah, that's thing. a whole other thing. But it's a, it's a interesting topic, and I love talking about this type of stuff. Yeah. So uh, one day we got to have you back. And, sure. <laughs> and we'll just do a list of like interesting misconceptions clarifying by the way more research on it yeah Yeah, i'll uh we won't give you a list or anything you have to pull it it. i i will shout out dr mike again he is a great show he he does his research and he's uh very informative so watch him on youtube he's excellent i don't get paid by him by the way i just think he's pretty awesome sponsor us and also if you like pretty looking people he's he's kind of a good looking guy so for those those of you that'll watch for that reason by all means (laughs) I have a famous fellow fish. Let's hear it. But I wanted to do a little um, a little sidebar of a different famous fish. When you were bringing up alcohol withdrawal causing seizures, mm-hmm. there's a podcaster for um, My Favorite Murder. Her name is Karen Kelgariff. Mm-hmm. And she has epilepsy. And when the seizures first started showing up, uh, she went to the, the hospital and her doctor said, well, it's because you're you have alcohol withdrawal. And she claimed... But I haven't stopped drinking. How am I having withdrawal? Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I love her so much. She's incredible. Um, amazing podcaster. She's my favorite murder is easily my favorite podcast. Except this one. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this one's yeah. way better. <laughs> Very different theme. Anyway, so if you uh, listen to the last episode, my not so uh, fun fact was about uh, epilepsy colonies. Um, this is actually uh, where I got the idea with this famous fellow fish, Jean Clemens, who was the daughter of Mark Twain. Oh, uh, she was the first of she was the youngest of four children, and the couple's first child was uh, died of. Can you pronounce that for me, Doctor? Diphtheria. Diphtheria. Can you tell me what that is? So diphtheria is a bacterial infection. Uh, they can cause really severe uh, upper respiratory tract type symptoms, but you can develop like a film in the back of your throat that can cause you to stop breathing, essentially high fevers, um, That's unfortunate. bad cough, and then some a bunch of different uh, issues can crop up, including issues with your heart, inflammation around your heart, kidney dysfunction. Oh. Okay, so that happened to a 19-month-old baby. Oh, that's so shame. Um, her older sisters were Susie and Clara. According to Mark Twain's autobiography, Jean was the kind-hearted and particularly fond of animals like her mother. She were she founded or worked with a number of societies for the protection of animals in various locations where she lived. So, Jean had epilepsy that showed up when she was 15 that her dad, Twain, uh, attributed to a head injury that she suffered when she was 8 or 9. The family spent years seeking cures in the United States and Europe. Twain also attributed her mood swings and sometimes erratic behavior to her uncontrolled epilepsy. Uh, Jean's mother, Olivia, tried to include her in family in her family life dispute her illness, but Olivia died in 1904 and was left to Twain and Clara to manage her and the difficulties with her illness, which with the uh, epilepsy caused. Uh, eventually, after Jean physically attacked the family, made Katie on two occasions saying that she was going to kill her, she was sent to a colony because her dad was like, I can't take care of her. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, it sucks, but I really can't. Eventually, Twain went to remarry a woman named Leon. Leon hoped to marry Twain and tried to keep them apart. Uh, keep Jean in the colony so I can have you to myself. This is all, I got this off wiki, this might be incorrect. So her father denied her request on coming home because he still couldn't care for her. And Twain fired the girl that was uh, trying to marry him, saying uh, that she was guilty of embezzlement because she was also his assistant, and permitted that Jean could return home in 1909. 
Uh, they seem to get along, even though she found him, quote, stubborn and temperamental. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then her death, Jean was staying at her father's home, uh, Stormfield, in Reading, Connecticut, in December 1909, and she had decorated the home for the upcoming Christmas holiday. She was found dead in the bathtub in the morning of December 24. She had apparently suffered a seizure and drowned. Clemens was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery, and her dad, Twain, died four months later. Mm. Series of unfortunate events right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, I remember being told, don't have baths, you could have, you could die. Full on, like, it was just, don't have baths, you could die. I would say to myself is basically, if I'm having any kind of, and we've talked about our auras, and mm. not in the hippie kind of way, and different auras, and some people will know a half hour ahead of time, so I imagine that for them it's quite easy, it's just, don't have a bath in the next half hour. But then there's people that just don't have any warning. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that that actually, I would say it's still individual because I'll know a little bit when I start paying attention. I got to sit down. These days I got to actually pay attention as opposed to uh, where it used to be very auditory kind of almost hallucinations where I hear almost like voices that don't make sense. Mm -hmm. It's like a sound. Yeah, I would definitely know not to do certain things. But I was also a stubborn ass and I would try to do things that I probably shouldn't have. Wait, was? Was well, still am. <laughs> I'm a stubborn ass. I, I fully admit it. Uh, but eventually, uh, common sense will prevail, even with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, I'll take care of myself better in the end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so getting to the medical part of this episode with Doctor Boo, I was going to talk about the brain surgery that we initially spoke about in episode two, which wound up being horrible. So we deleted that and aired a different episode too. So I had brain surgery when I was 13. Originally, they thought that I had one lesion in my brain. So they, it was like seven o'clock in the morning on your 10th birthday when I was being brought into the OR. And I remember clutching this teddy bear I had that I never saw again. Actually, I never got that bear back. So I went in with my stepmom who was reading Harry Potter out loud to try and calm me down, which was a doctor's suggestion apparently. And I'm like clutching onto this teddy bear and I'm like starting to get on the table and then I go, never mind, I don't want to anymore. And I tried to run for the door and someone grabbed me and then I remember a mask being placed on my face and then I woke up. Mm-hmm. Has that happened? Well, I've seen quite a few surgeries with pediatric patients uh-huh. and it's interesting, it's a completely different ball game than when you have adults in the operating room. Typically with adults, you get them to move over onto the bed themselves, lie down in the middle, they're in the exact position that you need in order to intubate them and get the the breathing tube down so you can attach them to the ventilator. But with pediatrics, it's obviously a little harder to get them to cooperate (laughs) in that way. In fact, with the adults, the mask that we use, some of the anesthetists will say, okay, so you're going to smell something that's just like Canadian Tire, and it just smells like pure rubber going over your face, and it's Kinda just delivering, does. yeah. I've had it a few times. Yeah. It's, it's nasty. Delivering oxygen right down there. But with the pediatric patients, they have, especially now, they have scented masks oh. that smell like cherry or bubble gum. The lucky little I bastards. Exactly. Get bubble gum. I, I didn't get bubble time. gum. I know. <laughs> So the the anesthetists will place the mask over and say, what do you think that smells like? And it, like, gets the kid to, like, inhale oh. a little bit more. <laughs> tricky, nice. tricky, tricky. It That's is. Awesome. Um, games, yeah. But, of course, with all that considered, a lot of kids are totally freaked out, no matter what little tricks you have in order to try and calm them down. And it's an unfamiliar, scary environment. But we do what we can, especially with pediatric patients, to try and get the environment a little bit more welcoming. Mm. A lot of the time that means that the the surgeon's wearing like a fun child-centered scrub cap. Um, Sometimes we'll get them to bring a teddy bear in just like yours. And we'll even dress them up in little gowns so that they're all kind of in the same same outfit um, and uh, just taking the time to be there, hold their hand while everything's happening. Have you had to tackle a 13 year old? No, oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, here's a, here's a added little fun fact. You know how in our last episode we talked about uh, Theodore Roosevelt? Yeah. Teddy bears are the name. Teddy bears comes from Theodore Roosevelt. Really? Yeah. He did a drive and I forget what the drive was for. It was uh, a while back and they created a bunch of uh, stuffed bears uh, to sell that would create uh, money for this charity that was going to this particular cause. 
and I can't for the life of me remember what the cause was, but they ended up being Let's called... pretend it was epilepsy. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, they ended up being called teddy bears. And ever since then, Aww. if you have a stuffed bear, it's a teddy bear. That's so cute. Just a little shout out to our last episode. Oh, Teddy. Shout out to Teddy. He should be like the... Uh, well, I guess... I guess our mascot is a fish. Yeah. But if we had a I don't a think he'd be head, appreciated. <laughs> um, yeah, so when they opened me up, yep. they thought that I had one lesion in my brain, but they opened me up and they found seven more than they expected. Yeah. Dr. Boo, what would be a reaction to what the fuck? There was only supposed to be one of these. <laughs> um, again, <laughs> I'm going to be vague again. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, you're allowed to. We're you're a to. general surgeon, so you can be generally, generally vague. Speak. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky because I'm. I obviously have more of a connection to this case than since I'm your sister. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess. But so. if one of my patients had something unexpected when we open up, there's always a moment of just um, frustration, uh, disappointment, disappointment, wishing that we could do more. Oh yeah. Um. And that's pretty hard to overcome. I remember uh, there's been a few cases where you go to do a surgery for somebody who has a cancer, like, say, a colon, colorectal cancer, and then you get in there and find out that it had spread more than you expected. Um, And you feel sad. You feel um, like you can't stop going through your mind what you're going to say to the patient and the family when they wake up. And... That's pretty difficult to cope with, but it's it's something that comes with the job, and we just hope that we can avoid those situations as much as possible by doing the proper workup ahead of time and being prepared and also talking through with the patient that that is a possibility that could happen. You know, some of the most dramatic cases, for example, are ones where we're going in with the aim to resect a pancreatic cancer. What does that mean? That means take out a okay. pancreatic yeah. cancer. Chop Speak out the bad bits. English. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're chopping out the bad bits and then yeah. putting them back, the rest connecting them. Okay. So literally resection. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, this is a really large operation. It's called a Whipple procedure typically. And it means that you have to take out a bunch of it just based on the blood supply to that area in the body. And sometimes you get in there and you realize that it's already invaded important structures like blood vessels. And we have to do what's typically called an open and close. So you open it up, you find that it's spread wider than you can resect, and you have to close and then tell the family that this patient will never recover. Essentially, we cannot take this cancer out. And boy, that's just awful. Everyone in the room just feels horrible about it. And... Obviously, it's nothing compared to what the family and the patient themselves feel after a procedure like that, but it still affects you, definitely. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's very unfortunate. Those type of things, it's like usually there's, I think with a lot of those, it's always a bit of an exploratory kind of procedure anyways mm-hmm. to start with because it's like this is the goal, but it's like all you see on the x-ray or whatever is just a, a cloud mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, well, that cloud can be several things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we think it's this. Mm-hmm. And they might have done, a, obviously, a biopsy, so they knew it was cancer. And yeah. then they go in there, and then it's like, oh, it's cancer, definitely, but it's now everywhere. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, well, yeah. there's no point. Imaging isn't perfect, and that's kind of the reality of it. Um, there are limitations to what we can see with the modalities that we have out there. It's always ongoing research, looking into trying to improve it so that we can predict and plan out these surgeries better. But there's always an element of a mystery to it. I actually saw it and I'm going to reference House, the TV show, but they, they mentioned a thing about imaging and that doing imaging of like an entire body, if you're looking for something, you don't know exactly what's wrong with a person that you can find a hundred different things that might be wrong, but are not doing anything. For sure. And then not only that, you'll, you can look at it and if you give it to a, a doctor that deals with cancer, uh, they'll say, oh, it's cancer. And then you see a doctor that deals with respiratory issues. They say, I oh, know no, exactly is... the episode you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's respiratory issues. Yeah. You know, and each mm-hmm. doctor will have their own take because they're an expert in that field. Mm-hmm. So they end up having a bias towards that field. You right. give it to an oncologist, they're going to see cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know exactly the episode you're talking about. Well, the, it's interesting. I'm currently on a, a rotation in, on the trauma service right now. So people get into car accidents or what have you. Uh, and typically, like what we do is we stabilize the patient in the trauma bay, give them fluids, give them blood, make sure that they're um, doing okay. And then 
typically what we do is we bring them to the CT scanner and do what's called a pan scan. You do a CT of their head, their neck, their chest, their abdomen, their pelvis, looking for any injuries that we can't pick up just by looking at them. But often what crops up is that we find these incidentals, so things that never would have clinically caused an issue for the patient, but like the classic one is a cyst in their kidney or a little spot on their liver. And it could be cancer, but it could be a hundred different things. And they recommend all this other workup Mm. uh, after the patient has already left hospital. But we need to keep track of that as the doctors on the trauma service and arrange for these tests to be done for these patients. And a lot of the time they're quite anxious about, oh, this spot in my liver, like what if it's cancer? And that's what they're really like thinking about while they're in hospital, even though they've been in a bad car wreck, for example. Yeah. But a lot of the time, it's nothing. Sometimes it is something. Sometimes we pick up on something earlier than it ever would have shown up and would cause them issues. So classic is um, somebody coming in and you find a pancreatic mass, uh, but it's a lot earlier than most people who have pancreatic cancer would show up with. So that can actually be a bit of a a blessing in disguise um, because you can catch it early because pancreatic cancer often shows up quite late. If you were to choose... One medical show, Scrubs, House, Grey's Anatomy, which one is almost the most realistic? Probably Scrubs. I think it has the most medical accuracy out of all of them. I love that it's the goofy one. Yeah. The one that's actually meant to be a comedy. I I have heard that before. Yeah. Uh, Watching House, I found it pretty, at times, it's pretty... at times, like now, yeah. what I will say is that the the terminology they use, I like the little details they go into. Like instead of alcoholism, they'll say etoh, mm-hmm. uh, which in medical terms means something, but it's, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else. Yeah. But it's they will do the effort to do that. But yeah. then at times, the way he comes through these major discoveries and the stuff and everything, that's not yeah. quite so. Also, just. The fact that everybody on the show does everything. So they're yeah. doing the surgery. They're doing like the pathologist job, cutting mm-hmm. up the specimens, looking at it under the microscope. Like 100% that's inaccurate. And they're like all that very just, different occupations. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Do you know why they actually do that stuff on TV? It's because they don't want to pay other actors. Yeah. They're already paying mm-hmm. those actors. So they're totally. going to, and they want to put them on screen as much as possible. Yeah. It has nothing to do with, uh, because then they have to pay someone else to do that job. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can understand that. But a lot of the, the medical terms and the things that happened, I found were pretty good on that show. Yeah, they use a lot of the jargon for sure. Which yeah. I appreciated because I've seen some horrendous ones mm-hmm. that were terrible. Like, uh, I remember, here's a terrible show. Like, everybody knows this show was terrible. But uh, Under the Dome. It started out as a, it's a Stephen King book. Okay. Uh, but it started out as, uh, I thought it was going to be a miniseries. And because he does very good miniseries quite often because they're just short and sweet. Done. You know, just do the book and that's it. At the end of the season, they're like, wait for season two. And uh, they hadn't ended the show. Like they did a lot of the stuff. So the first season wasn't too bad. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, well, no, that's a book it should be done yeah <laughs> and then they carried it on to season two which was horrendous yeah and then season three which was even more horrendous yeah i, I watched them because it was so funny but they would do crazy stuff like they had an iv hanging for this one patient and so the nurse needs to give them meds and it's we're talking like a one liter bag of saline right yeah and sticks it right into the middle of the bag <laughs> and just injects the yeah. needle into it like not into the ports or anything yeah like little things like that it's like well now you're gonna have this bag that's leaking leaking <laughs> And it's also, you don't put meds into a one liter bag. No. You put it into like the 150 milliliter bags and stuff like that. Like little things like that, that kind of uh, tripped my mind. And I was like, what? What are you doing? Yeah. And and I kept on, and then you end up focusing on that and not the show. Yeah. But it wasn't a terribly good show anyway, so. (laughs) There was this one clip that I just saw on Instagram that just was so funny. And again, this is like very medical jargony, but essentially the clip shows this woman who needs a a chest tube put in. So for people who don't really know what that is, um, sometimes, especially after like being in a bad car accident, you can get what's called a pneumothorax or a hemothorax. That just means a collection of air or blood outside of the lung that makes it difficult for you to breathe. Usually we put in a tube in order to drain that. And in this show, they take 
an endotracheal tube, so something <laughs> used to intubate them, which goes like down your throat and into your, your trachea to help you breathe during a surgery. And they put that in the chest tube, in like where the chest tube should be. <laughs> and then they attach uh, an ambu bag, which is like a big balloon that they use to force air into people's lungs. To catch the blood or to catch the blood and it starts to just fill with blood and then the patient like <gasps> takes the breath of life and oh man, it's just so funny. Is that what you were watching yesterday? Yeah, what? I just don't understand how like they who is the medical advisor on this show? I have so many questions. I will say a lot of directors will ask the advice and then I completely ignore it. Yeah. Because they don't like it. It doesn't look as good on screen. Yeah. It just looks so stupid. And they and they know for like 90% of the people, they won't care. Yeah. But for all the people that care, they care a lot. Yeah. That it was, looks ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. That was one of the things that I asked Boo when we picked her up from the airport automatically. She's in the back seat in the, I'm in shotgun. I'm turning around like bombarding you with all of these medical questions. You've just been flying for like 12 hours. <laughs> but one thing that I think looks so cool, but clearly so fake in... Uh, medical shows is when oh, like yeah. they start flatlining and a doctor just like slams their fist down on their chest <laughs> yeah. and I'm like it looks so cool but that can't be real it's not so I asked Vu and she just automatically started laughing like anyone who's done any type of training in CPR knows that that's not how you start your compression it looks so cool though. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like damn it's breathe very, yeah very emotional no <laughs> All right. Oh, okay, let's go to questions because okay, we got to get these questions. Going. Back to questions. Uh, what's the difference between a tumor and a lesion? Because we were talking about lesions in uh, yeah. Liv's brain and also how people can have seizures with tumors, mm-hmm. obviously, because it's another way of uh, affecting the brain. Uh, what's the difference between the two? You know, I think it's just a difference in terminology. Um, it's You could probably use them interchangeably most of the time. Um, but there's a difference between a tumor and cancer. Okay. Which a lot of the time people hear tumor, they think it's cancer, but it's not always. There's like benign tumors as well, which are growths, which you can also call lesions. Yeah. Now, now please correct me. My, my understanding was that with lesions, it could be something along the lines as uh, damage or something like scarring. Yeah. And yeah. so you have a different couple different ways of looking at that. But the tumor is a uncontrolled growth. Yeah. So I think you could probably say that a tumor is a type of lesion that's more of an umbrella term okay that makes sense and then but not all tumors are wait not all tumors lesions are, are tumors. lesions but all lesions are tumors probably would okay be. yeah but le- lesion is honestly a pretty vague term yeah like you i don't know it could be it could be a description for a cancer it could be uh a description of like a lipomatous thing which is what livy has can you describe lipotomous like lipo- five lipoma um, or li- think of the term liposuction. You're sucking fat out of somebody. Uh-huh. It, you know it relates to fat. Um, lipomatous or lipoma is like an abnormal growth of fat. Right, okay. yeah. I didn't yeah. mention that the uh, things in my head are pieces of fat. Yeah. And the thing to remember, everybody, is if you're thinking you're a fathead, yeah. it's like everybody's a fathead. It's a lipid-based system up yeah. there. I'm so. especially a fat. <laughs> I'm a fat brain. Yeah. I'm a fat you can, brain. You can get lipomas anywhere. So a yeah. typical, sometimes if you feel something like soft and squishy growing under your skin, that's a lump. A lot of the time, that's a lipoma. You can get them in your bowel. You can get them anywhere, really. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Besides EEGs and MRIs, what are other tests that are used to diagnose a seizure disorder? Yeah, so I guess this is a pretty good time for me to say that I am not in any way a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. <laughs> but you did talk to your partner yesterday. I did, yeah. Um, I've gone through medical school, which covers neuro-based topics, obviously, and I did a two-week rotation in neurosurgery. Um, so that's about where my level of expertise lies. Um I am assisted by my partner, who's a neurosurgery resident. Again, not a full-fledged expert or neurosurgeon himself, but I asked him about this. And he was saying that um, there's a lot of different types of EEGs other than just those leads that you see stuck to people's heads. Um, There's ones that can actually be uh, implanted or put under the skull, in order to more accurately measure and localize lesions. Um, There's also like functional MRI, which helps you again see in real time brain activity and with the hopes to better localize lesions. Yeah, so I would say that just a lot of different variations of those two are quite helpful. 
So it's not just like there's EEGs and there are MRIs. There's like EEG A, EEG B. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's also the thinking of the diagnosis of a disorder is usually it's a lot of history. Yeah. Uh, some sometimes when you're just talking to a person, it's like how did this start? How did this happen? Mm-hmm. And there's uh, a lot of similarities with certain kinds of things. And when you get people with seizures, I mean. The thing I mentioned on, I think it was the previous show, uh, not the previous show, the previous show to the previous show. Episode six. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and we'll go with that. Um, I, a lot of these uh, seizures, it, seizure isn't a disease. It's a symptom of something. And you don't always know what's wrong. Yeah. It, but there is something that's obviously wrong, but you don't know what. And it could be something that's just untraceable. Uh, like the brain grew in exactly the wrong way in one particular part, but it doesn't look any different to our current uh, abilities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, diagnosing these things, and this happens all through medicine, I believe, is that it's a bit of uh, educated guess in sometimes, unless you have a direct thing that you can say, this is the most likely culprit, Mm -hmm. and you can point at that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's how do we best take care of it? Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what they end up focusing on. That's what they did with me. Yeah. Is they can't tell what's wrong with me. They're like... it. They did all the blood tests and stuff, and I don't have any imbalances. Mm-hmm. And that can be something that causes mm-hmm. a lot of things. So just doing general blood work is one of the tests they can do mm-hmm. for seizures. And it's mm-hmm. one of those things that's sometimes doesn't show anything, yeah. and you're hoping to find something. Because if you got something, you got something you can fix. Yeah. and that's Or even just having an answer is sometimes therapeutic for a patient in oh, its own it's, way. I yeah. can imagine. Because yeah. I haven't had an answer the entire time I've had this stuff, yeah. and it's annoying. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. You made a really good point. Just like the history, physical examination part is super important because there are some, for example, genetic disorders that relate to seizure disorders. So neurofibromatosis is one of the ones that come up in our medical education. And there's actually like skin findings, skin lesions, I'll use the term again, <laughs> um, that are characteristic of that seizure disorder uh, that can help you diagnose it as well. And it's quite helpful uh, in terms of guiding management. So that's a, a, an important part, especially with um, in terms of localizing lesions, finding the origin. Uh, that can be really interesting, especially with, with seizures, because, for example, Livy has specific auras and uh, specific parts of her body that are more affected than others in her during her seizures. Yeah, the right side of my body. Exactly. And that can be directly traced back to the localization of where these lesions are. So without even having Im- any imaging, you could probably guess where the foci are of her seizures. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, different parts of the brain yeah, yeah. no, no. I, but then again, getting... there's there's different types of seizures too. Like Libby yeah. has one, like a specific area in her brain that is the epicenter of where it all starts and then spreads from there. But then some people just have generalized seizures. There's no specific spot. Yeah, we did it. We did an episode on this and we got to retouch it because it was like an hour and 10 minute episode. We should choose like and it was three just, of those. Yeah, and, and it was just touch. listing all the different types yeah. of seizures. <laughs> and it was like exhaustive. <laughs> And, and so we really got to do a better episode on that, I think. Yeah. Uh, something Agreed. for the future. 100%. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, what is the your favorite or most uh, memorable, at least, uh, surgery you were ever part of? It could uh, be one that was just interesting or just fun. Or yeah. both. Well, I'm, again, just a little bit of context. I'm in my first year of my general surgery residency, so... Um, a lot of people have questions about like, what even is a general surgeon. That doesn't mean I do all kinds of surgery. It actually is more specific to intra-abdominal surgeries. And if I get more training, I can do thoracic surgery, which is lungs and thorax based. That's just like kind of the chest in general. A lot of the sur- surgeries that we do are take out gallbladders, take out appendixes. If you have appendicitis, those are kind of the classic ones, but also doing surgeries for colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer. Um, and it's a lot of fun, a lot of bowels, a lot of poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would have to say my favorite surgery that I've seen so far is, it was really cool actually. It was a hand-assisted laparoscopic splenectomy. So that Ooh. means taking out the spleen in a guy who had an absolutely gigantic spleen. It was, it took out, I think it was in the end about two kilograms. Oh my God. It was massive. And how much do they normally weigh? <laughs> it's usually like can fit into the palms of your hand. 
Oh my god! But it was taking up his entire abdomen. Oh. Yeah. Um, and luckily, that's one organ you can live without. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, the spleen is uh, a helpful organ, but you can definitely get by without it, uh, especially if you get your appropriate vaccines after or before even it's taken out. Um, so the reason this was so cool was because the, they had this hand port, which means you make like kind of a larger incision and you put this sort of jelly looking cover over it and you stick your whole hand into the abdomen, but everything else is being used with these, the long instruments that you'll see in TV shows, um, that help you kind of, uh, burn away some of the excess tissue and separate everything out. And then once it's all off the blood supply, you stick it in a bag and you have to like crush it up and pull it out in pieces <laughs> in order to get it out. Cause otherwise you've made these tiny incisions. So like people only have like I don't know, a few small scars that heal up quite quickly with the laparoscopic approach. Right, right. But otherwise, how are you going to get this giant spleen out? You have to pummel it and take it out. And actually, the surgeon that I was working with at the time had a bet for everyone in the room. Whoever was closest to the weight of the spleen (laughs) would get a full-size chocolate bar. Um, So that was fun. (laughs) Did you win? No, I did not. The scrub nurse won, but the scrub nurses always win. They've seen... A bajillion are yeah. the, the <laughs> biggest experts. Yeah, they... next to the next to the surgeon, they're the the experts. So, what's That's... your favorite ER story? So, like trauma, I guess. The thing or have you worked now. much in ER? I guess it's a. Good uh, I've done rotations in emergency medicine. Um, I did two weeks as a medical student uh, in, in my third year, and another two weeks in my fourth year. Now I don't do any actual emergency rotations. Now that I've specifically. Take, chosen the path of general surgery. Um, but I do spend a lot of time in the uh, eMERGE seeing consults that come through for general surgery. So um, I will so say I, I've uh, worked uh, when I was doing my nursing training. We did a number of ones around there. And I've, I've done a bit of everything, actually. I did some peds. I did uh, general medicine and uh, acute care. And yeah, they're all fascinating in their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the one I'll never, ever do is hospice. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's for those that haven't heard the term, and I think most people know it, but mm-hmm. for those that haven't heard it, it's where basically most people go to die. Uh, it's It takes care of them, gives them the nicest, uh, best death. Makes they can you comfortable? Have. Comfortable, mm-hmm. yeah. It's uh, not for me. It, it <laughs> takes special people to do that one, I think. Yeah. Some people are really drawn to it, and mm-hmm. I commend them for sure. Oh, absolutely. It's a job I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. But ER. Yeah. I, yeah. I like the pace of the eMERGE. Mm-hmm. I almost, I considered doing emergency medicine for a brief period uh, just because I like how it's fast paced. There's a variety of things that you're seeing. Um, you kind of always have to be on your toes. I really liked those aspects of it. It's a hard question. It's yeah. just like, it's so varied. What I find is interesting is it can go from like a nothing night to like, oh crap, yeah. I'm getting hit with all this stuff. Cause they're the ones that have to deal with any kind of, say there's a car accident, a car pile up and there's like five or six people. Mm-hmm. Suddenly they got five or six people that do need immediate attention. For sure. And so now you're triaging and you're, it's it's kind of a crazy uh, field to work in. Yeah. One of, one of the things that if, if I may, and you can say if this is correct or not, cause I did a small uh, stint as a student nurse in an OR. Yeah. And uh, one of the things is like you have so little, quite often, so little interaction with the actual people you're taking care of because you end up uh, doing the operation and then they're out. And then they're on a medical floor for a recovery. Mm. And I don't know. Do you get that much interaction with them? For sure. Yeah. So typically for us, um, we'll have the patient come in. We'll do the operation. They're admitted to the surgical inpatient service. So... I'm the one rounding on them every morning, seeing Fantastic. them. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, typically the residents are the ones that get to know the patients better than even the staff members. Um, so that's been great. That way you get that continuity and start to build those kind of therapeutic relationships with your patients. Um, I think one of my favorite memories this year so far was um, a night when I was on call and I was basically the only one at the hospital my senior resident wasn't there my staff member obviously wasn't there and I got a call from the medicine inpatient ward and um, somebody there had really bad abdominal pain so 
typically what people will say the buzzword is this person has peritonitis and that's a medical emergency. They had done some abdominal x-rays and the patient had what's called free air. So that means somewhere in the bowel, something has leaked, something has, there's a hole somewhere in the bowel and the patient's quite ill. And this can be really like a life threatening emergency and you need to get them to the operation really quickly. So I was the one who saw this patient, worked them up for their surgery, booked the surgery. And I physically myself alone wheeled this person downstairs to the operating room because there was nobody else around to help me. <laughs> no it was a, I think it was, hospital. I think it was the Sunday on a long weekend. Oh God. So like skeleton crew. That's terrible. Um, <laughs> and then my staff and my senior resident arrived just before the case is about to start. Um, and, uh, met him for the first time as he's getting onto the operating table. The only person he'd met from the surgical team was was me as the junior resident. And then every day after that, I got to round on this guy. We managed to find the problem, fix it, and everything went really well. And every time that I'd see him afterwards, he identified me as the person who helped him. Like he kind of related me as the surgical service. And that's that can be really uh, <laughs> a good feeling. It's actually kind of surprising. Um, I don't want to, sometimes it's hard to sound, not to sound a little bit salty. Like in, I'm essentially <laughs> in my intern year. It is insanely long work hours. I'm probably working more than 80 hours a week. Yeah. Um, very little sleep, very little time to myself and or time to do anything else. Yeah. But it makes it worth it when a patient tells you that you saved their life, which is pretty huge. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get into general surgery, because you have that chance to really make an impact. And a lot of sometimes it's like life or death situations and you have to act quickly and make those critical decisions and it's really rewarding when it when it works out well i think general surgery in particular is one of those things where there's pivotal movements and you have to act on it and i'm really drawn to that that's Um, fantastic yeah yeah that was such a wonderful story i can't (laughs) stop smiling (laughs) so Liv, do you have a shout out for us i have a shout out to all of the first year residents uh at hospitals trying to do just trying to do their best trying to help everyone they can not even just for fish. Just mm-hmm. trying to help people. People that have big poops that won't come out. And people that are having seizures <laughs> that won't stop. Just a shout out to all of the residents that just want to help. That's my shout out for today. That's fantastic. Do you have a joke? Oh, I Do you always, have a fit of laughter? <laughs> I always have jokes. Okay, we're going to do a joke. And then we're going to thank our lovely guest for coming out for us today. And uh, then we're going to sign off. So, fits of laughter. The doctor says, I have very bad news for you. You've got cancer and Alzheimer's. The patient. Oh, God. Well, at least I don't have cancer. (laughs) Oh, geez. It's terrible. I know. Yeah. All right. So this has been Fish Out of Water. You can reach out to us at fishoutofwater101 at outlook.com. Our Twitter handle is at fishpodcast101. Or, of course, we have a Facebook page, Fish Out of Water, colon, carpe diem. So, Steve, what do you say? Carpe diem. Get it? Thank you, boo-boo.